0: The Biden administration is sending stronger and stronger signals that it is effectively surrendering to the COVID pandemic, urging the public to, quote, learn to live with, unquote, the deadly disease that has killed well over 800,000 people in the United States alone. Meanwhile, high profile talks are taking place between U.S. and Russian officials. The killers of Ahmad Arbery were sentenced and devastating residential fires took place in New York City and Philadelphia.
1: We need a new system.
0: Today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's January 11th, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthroughnews. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Rissell, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, let's start with these huge COVID numbers.
1: Yeah. And let's put it into perspective. I want to play some audio clips. We have Joe Biden, president of the United States of America, chief executive of the capitalist government. And we also have some audio clips from Donald Trump, who preceded Joe Biden, as we all know, in the White House. I think when we listen to them, both of them speak for a moment, it just reminds us that this isn't, The failure of the Republicans. It wasn't the failure of Trump. It wasn't the failure of the Democrats or the failure of Biden. It was the failure of all of them. And these are the two ruling class parties that are allowed to change places with each other every four years, or in the case of Congress, every two years in the capitalist elections. We're given the sense of variety because we get to vote for a Republican or a Democrat every two or four years. Yes, other parties can run, but none of them stand a chance of winning. So the two ruling class parties really reflect American governance and the capitalist ruling class and its abilities or its inabilities. I wanna start with Joe Biden. This is Biden speaking on July 4th or July 5th. It's around the July 4th ceremonies. He's declaring that America is about to become independent from coronavirus. Let's listen.
2: We've gained the upper hand against this virus. We can live our lives. Our kids
1: can go back to school. Our economy is roaring back.
0: All right. There's two more. He also talks about how we have to work together. Yet, you know, he hasn't actually mobilized the government to act to stop any of the new variants or ensure we have testing or anything like that. Let's listen to that one.
1: For together... We're
3: beating the virus. Together, we're breathing life into our economy. Together, we will rescue our people from division and despair. But together, we must do it.
0: Just so ridiculous when people like him and the elites in this country have access to testing. They have access to, you know, actually seeing doctors. They have access to working from home when they need to and N95 masks. And that just is deeply not the case for anyone else. Of course, not to mention anything about the rest of the world. Here's this third clip as well, where Biden really accurately states what the U.S. government could do in response to COVID.
1: So today, while the virus hasn't been vanquished,
3: we know this. It no longer controls our lives. It no longer paralyzes our nation. And it's within our power
1: to make sure it never does again. All right. Now, this is not true, everybody. And we know it's not true. The average number of new cases for COVID are now 677,000 each day. And the new average for daily hospitalizations in the United States is 131,000. We know schools are disrupted. We know healthcare workers who are burnt out, who are unable to keep up with the volume of patients are actually leaving their jobs. In some cases, they're being laid off. This is the reality. None of what Joe Biden was saying was actually true. And that was just six months ago. But let's also remember, it's not just the Democrats. Here are some audio clips from Donald Trump. Again, when the virus was new, when the United States had advanced notice from China that A new epidemic was coming, a pandemic was coming. China discovered it first in early January. It sequenced the genome. It shared it with the World Health Organization. It shared it with the Centers for Disease Control. The U.S. senators, if you remember, in January 2020, were briefed by intelligence services. What they did then was to sell their stocks, the stocks in vulnerable industries or enterprises that they knew would be impacted by a pandemic. Again, the U.S. had ample warning, certainly far more warning than China had. And again, China has like 5,000 deaths. The U.S. has over 800,000 deaths. But let's listen to what Donald Trump said way back when, when he was president of the United States. And are
4: there
0: words about a pandemic
4: at this point? No, we're not at all. And uh, we're, we have it totally under
0: control.
3: We're now up to our eighth case in the United States. Um, how concerned are you?
1: Well, we pretty much shut it down. You know, a lot of people think that goes away in April. We have contained this, I won't say airtight, but pretty close to airtight. Within a couple of days, it's going to be down to close to zero. There's a chance that it won't spread. It's going to disappear one day. It's like a miracle. Almost everybody that we see is getting better. And it could be everybody, too. Oh, they can to have vaccines, I think, relatively soon. And they're going to have something that makes you better. And that's going to actually take place, we think, even sooner. We have thousands or hundreds of thousands of people
4: that get better just by, you know, sitting around and even going to work. Some of them go to work, but they get better.
1: Well, that's true. Many do get better. But, you know, that was in 2020. In 2021, the number of people who died from COVID in the United States, a year after that, a year after that, was somewhere in the range of like 470,000, something like that. Again, the number of people in China, a country four times the population of the United States, the number of Chinese people who died from COVID in 2021 was two, yes, two. Go to liberationnews.org. This is a well-researched article. It shows the scholarship behind the research. Two people in China died, while almost 500,000 people in the United States died. Anyway, let's get started. As you said in the introduction, Nicole, the U.S. government is now surrendering. Basically, the line has shifted in the last week or two, maybe even in the last few days, with the Biden administration.
0: It has, even though there are, you know, these really skyrocketing case numbers. Even in the past two weeks, there's been a 215% increase in the number of cases per day, the daily average from two weeks ago. It's just, I mean, Omicron is taking over. It's huge. And the hospitalization rates in some spots are starting to skyrocket as well. And yet the new position is, you know, it's here to stay. I want to read from a Washington Post editorial that really, I think, highlights what's happening here. Quote, six public health and medical experts who took part in Biden's presidential transition have published three articles in the Journal of the American Medical Association saying that COVID, quote, is here to stay, unquote, and the nation needs a strategy for a, quote, new normal, unquote. This is a marked shift from the message Mr. Biden delivered in his early months in office promising to tamp down the virus with vaccines. But it was clear even before the Delta and Omicron waves that the pandemic would not screech to a halt. Last summer, several prominent public health experts warned in an article titled The Forever Virus that COVID, quote, is not going away, unquote. So the shift is essentially that Joe Biden and some of the other elites on Capitol Hill are starting to say, well, this is here to stay. we're gonna have to figure this out. We've got a, a clip we can play from Nancy Pelosi as well who you know highlights the need for personal responsibility when what's really going on is yet and still, this is the third year of the pandemic. And you still can't get a test. It is very difficult. Even in Washington, D.C., where I think it's probably one of the best set up testing areas in the country, there are free tests available at libraries, but there are lines to get them. And the labs are still taking days and days and days to process them. And even the tests that we do have, the rapid tests that we do have, we're not sure at this point if they're really testing accurately for Omicron variant. But I mean, that also brings us to why the Omicron variant is here in the first place, it's spread remarkably quickly in the United States because there are no lockdowns, we're back to work. You know, there aren't mask requirements in a lot of places, including in Washington DC and New York for some period where there definitely should have been, you know, because the government isn't taking this seriously. But of course, the other incredibly important component is that there is this vaccine apartheid, meaning that Because the United States and U.S. corporations are refusing to release the patents on some of these vaccines, there aren't vaccines available in the rest of the country. And of course, that is creating more and more variants that are affecting people all over the globe, including here in the United States.
3: Right, Nicole. And I guess what makes the scenario worse you know, as I look at it is that they are giving into COVID while at the same time not correcting those failures of the capitalist system from the start, not just under Biden, not just blaming him, but in fighting the pandemic period in supplying the materials, the resources, the support for workers for the society to succeed. You know, when we talk about them giving in, we want what would it look like for them to do the things for the society to succeed? So, I mean, I'm listening to Jen Psaki, Biden's spokesperson, you know, coming out and speaking against the Chicago teachers. And that's so ridiculous when they know that the federal government or maybe even these private public partnerships that they love so much, you know, have not set up the kinds of public health systems. We have no public health system, right? There's no mass testing that you talked about or mask distribution to really deal with the crisis. I heard some educators speaking, for example, about schools. And they were saying how at this point, they know that the KN95 mask is really the most effective one and that all the ways that people have been trying to protect themselves. In many ways, these things aren't working because they're not wearing the best mask they're not wearing the mask properly where mask mandates have been set up not everyone is adhering to them you know you you know yourself you go into some places where half the employees are wearing masks and then some of them have just their mouth covered or you know some people are not wearing a mask at all a lot of businesses like restaurants that are still struggling they're dealing with the simple fact that people cannot wear a mask inside and eat at the same time neither can schools children. They can't have lunch or have a break where they're supposed to be like maybe having a snack or something and have their mask on. So the ways that the federal government has not been able to or been willing to have a nationwide situation like they do in China, that's a real reason why they have not been successful. So Last week, the AFL-CIO and nurses unions across the country, they actually had to file a petition in a federal court to order the Biden administration to issue an official and permanent OSHA standard requiring employers to protect healthcare workers from COVID-19. And because the Biden, and more so probably Trump, before him have dragged their feet on these standards, we still don't have them. Yet they basically want to tell workers like teachers, for example, and even healthcare workers to just go back to work. And also stories broke last week that Democratic Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland and Republican Senator Roger Wicker of Mississippi wanted the Biden administration to consider more COVID aid for small businesses like restaurants, gyms, and performance venues that are still suffering. But apparently, not only was Senate leadership not interested, but the Washington Post quoted someone only described as a senior Biden administration official turning down that same proposal. And I'm reading from the article. A senior Biden administration official poured cold water on any further stimulus at this time, leaving the possibility open for some relief for restaurants. Quote, no, there might be something small for restaurants, but the economy is booming. There are millions of open jobs and we do not believe people should be sitting at home if they are vaccinated and boosted as most adults are The senior official said when asked if additional stimulus legislation was being taken seriously, the official added, so we are not going to write checks to incentivize people to sit at home and we are not going to bail out businesses if the economy seems strong, end quote, leaving the possibility open if something changes. And what's really telling for me is that this proposal was just for businesses. This senior Biden official, whoever it is, added this comment about not writing checks for people to sit at home, which could be referring to additional COVID stimulus for workers, but given how the popular child tax credit has been allowed to die. I think this senior official is also signaling something that, Brian, you discussed a few weeks ago, that there are key people in the Biden administration who align with the right and think that any small benefit to working families is keeping them from going back to the crummy jobs that do not pay a living wage, but that in the past have kept U.S. capitalism humming along. And this unwillingness to take care of workers is despite the fact that we know studies are showing that having these benefits cut are not making people go back to the these crappy jobs, and that COVID has created a fundamental shift in the work life of Americans, with more women that we've discussed, especially mothers of young children, opting to not go back into workplaces, especially since there's no childcare, and workers having more choice to take jobs that pay better, that offer more flexibility, And, you know, there are more workers striking, forming unions or staging informal walkouts or protests for better working conditions. And I think I mentioned in our meeting before the show that on Monday, substitute teachers in Washington, D.C. staged a protest in front of what is our city hall, the Wilson building. And, you know, they're saying that they're not paid enough. They're not being treated fairly. And just given the type of equity they need, especially, as they are called on more and more in the pandemic. And finally, I just have to get this in. We've talked about, Joe Manchin of West Virginia singling out the child tax credit for elimination, you know, in his latest Hatchet Act on Biden's Build Back Better Act, which is languishing in the Senate, along with voting rights. And even corporate media, we saw over the weekend, The Washington Post and The New York Times published opinion pieces staking out the fact that the United Mine Workers support Bill Back Better. And that Manchin's position, clearly in support of the mine owners, coal barons like himself, you know, and not the mine workers, is putting him in a, a new position where uh, workers can really see where he stands.
0: And he has gotten more campaign donations from oil, coal and gas industries than any other senator in this election cycle. I mean, it really shows, you know, he is part of that elite just like Biden, just like Nancy Pelosi, who I want to play a clip from in just a second, that, you know, is much more in the camp. They're in the camp representing the mine owners. They're in the camp representing the pharmaceutical owners who would rather not give away patents to make sure that people could have vaccines around the world. I mean, it's really all part of the same game. I do want to play this clip from Nancy Pelosi. This is Face the Nation on Sunday. She was interviewed on Face the Nation. And I mean, she's asked a question about about the coronavirus about the huge spike in cases and her first answer is to talk about Harry Reid who she just came from a like a funeral service for Harry Reid
1: I have to say Nicole you know when I heard this thing I thought if this is the public face of the democrats in the middle of the pandemic and you have Nancy Pelosi who can hardly put two sentences together And she's the leader, the public facing leader of the Democratic Party. And she's asked this question, what are you going to do about the crisis? And it's like this ho-hum response. I thought, like, yeah, the Democrats can't stand a chance if this is their position and their posture right now in the middle of this crisis.
0: Exactly. It's a long clip, but take a listen and just, you know, listen to, to how she answers this. It's really atrocious.
5: How will this surge impact the work that you are able to do in the coming weeks? Well, before I go into that, I just want to say that I come here on this Sunday morning, fresh from the service, um, celebrating the life of Majority Leader Harry Reid. Uh, Two presidents of the United States spoke. The leadership of the Congress, the vice president was there, governors, everyone. But nothing was as eloquent than the voices of his... The voices of his children, mm-hmm. who spoke about their father. So, being here in this, on the Senate side, uh, I have to begin by praising and, and remembering Harry Reid. COVID is it is the center of it all. It's about uh, the health of the American people, of course, but it's also about its impact on our economy, the education of our children, the safety of everyone at work or in school. Uh, so, uh, the the. Uh, I look forward to our taking advantage of advances in science on this, that there is a pill that will be able to intervene in early stages, and we want to have the resources available to do that. Uh, The issues before the Supreme Court will be very important two bills, excuse me, two uh, cases there, one about health care workers, one about the president's mandate for going beyond health care workers. So uh, there, there's a good deal, whether it's legislation for more resources, whether it's the court's decision and the rest. And also, it's just about our own taking personal responsibility to stay safe.
1: Wow. What a miserable failure. I mean, but a lot of that is code, personal responsibility. That means the government is sort of relieving itself of responsibility. It's up to you. And when she's talking about, well, we have to balance the health of the American people against the economy. She's talking not about the economy of the workers. She's talking about the economy of the capitalists, meaning they have to drive workers back to work no matter what. I mean, when you think about what's actually happened, I know we want to go on quickly to our our next story about Russia and Ukraine and the possibility of a bigger conflict in that part of the world. But I want to say just a couple sort of final points, or maybe they're not the final points. Some of you might want to jump in, but I'm looking at a Facebook posting from someone who I think lives in Chicago. I won't say his name, but it's posted on Facebook. He says, this is the state of failure in the U.S. pandemic response. There is no federal mobilization to provide COVID testing, not even fractionally like what was available in the summer and fall of 2020. But everyone needs to get tested and frequently for safety, for peace of mind, to provide proof of health insurance purposes, to enter businesses and places of work, to travel, to attend school. The rapid tests are out of stock everywhere. And before the Omicron variant, WAVE, the manufacturers and some retailers were actually throwing away tests by the box load because they thought they wouldn't sell anymore. The PCR tests at pharmacies and community health centers are booked out for weeks. In come the unregulated pop-up testing centers housed in empty storefronts, stocked with a handful of chairs to share between dozens of crammed people seeking tests and staffed by a couple of people at folding tables improperly wearing masks and shouting out rapid results without concern for medical privacy. They tell people in line to mark, quote, no insurance, close quote, on the forum so that the pop-up can maximize their government reimbursement. Some of these places are even charging people for the tests. I visited one of these pop-ups to get tested before Christmas it was pandemonium inside, absolutely no order to anything. We received our rapid results tests in 10 to 15 minutes in such a way that everyone could hear it. Anyway, you know, Nicole, when you hear this kind of vivid description of what it's actually like, and then you have politicians, these octogenarian politicians like Pelosi, and the other, you know, forces within the U.S. Democratic and Republican Party getting up and saying, well, we have to take personal responsibility and we have to balance the needs of the American people's health versus the economy equals the capitalists. I mean, what a complete, vivid sort of description of why capitalism, especially U.S. capitalism, is a complete and utter failure.
0: That's exactly right. And I want to emphasize too something that that Esther brought up before the clip, that it totally ties in here. I mean, Manchin is so clearly among this exact group of people in his initial comments about not being able to support or vote for the Build Back Better plan. That is not only widely popular around the country among workers of any party, but is also something that is just very basically common sense that will help all workers, will help all people. One of his main comments was that he says that he, quote, cannot explain, unquote, Build Back Better to West Virginia. But I just want to highlight again what Esther said, because this hasn't made news. And this was a statement that came out a couple of weeks ago from the United Mine Workers of America. I mean, they literally put out a press release, the mine workers, the people working in mines in West Virginia and other places, saying, we support the Build Back Better legislation. It includes and now I'm quoting, several items that we believe are important for our members and their communities, some of which are part of the principles for energy transition that we laid out last spring, unquote. I mean, they go on to say that, quote, we are disappointed that the bill will not pass. We urge Senator Manchin to revisit his opposition to this legislation and pass something that will keep coal miners working and have a meaningful impact on our members, their families, and communities. And they go on to reiterate support for the passage of voting rights legislation as soon as possible. I mean, he's standing behind, hiding behind, you know, this sort of prop of coal miners, when in fact, the actual coal miners themselves are saying, no, no, that's not what we want. You are not doing what we want. I mean, it's just, it sounds so similar to me of Nancy Pelosi standing up there and saying, yes, personal responsibility is what will get you through this crisis, despite the fact that you, you know, can't access real facts and recommendations, despite the fact that you can't access testing, and despite the fact that the majority of people in America have to go to work, despite the fact that there are you know huge case numbers and not adequate mask mandates right
3: and at some point there was a lot of press coverage over the fact that in Florida DeSantis had let a tremendous number of tests that were allowed to expire that had to be <laughs> discarded and that received a lot of press coverage in the kind of the democratic press you could call them but when The teachers in Chicago are basically saying there is not the adequate testing, there is not the adequate resources here for us to be safe and for the children to be safe. These teachers are attacked and this is part of the democratic base. Similarly in New York City, Eric Adams, the new mayor, was on the the weekend shows talking about how the Biden administration had given them all the tests that they need, but they are not meeting the request of teachers that more testing be done in schools. They have a system where they will test Not all parents are submitting to the testing for their children. And if a child does test positive, that child is removed. But, you know, there are a lot of children who aren't tested at all. So the system, there is no blanket system across the country. There's this patchwork system of testing and enforcement and public health. And we know that there is no public health system here.
1: All right. I want to go on to another important story Yesterday, Walter, negotiations started between the United States and Russia over the war going on in Ukraine. We have some audio clips from Anthony Blinken, but let's start with you framing the issue.
4: Yeah, Brian, I mean, the situation in Ukraine, the crisis in Ukraine is one of the most dangerous situations in world politics, because on either side are two nuclear armed world powers, the United States and Russia. The conflict goes back to 2014, when it was a coup d'etat against the Ukrainian government and the installation of a pro west government that has in its you know very highest ranks literal actual neo nazis so a war broke out in the east of the country which is ethnically russian and was deeply opposed to this new right wing government pro west government that took over and there have been you know a series of negotiations different diplomatic arrangements over the years but the conflict has never ended and in the last several months tensions have been inflamed again. The United States is accusing Russia of essentially preparing to invade Ukraine, stage a massive military intervention with a 100,000 troops, saying that Russia is concentrating those troops on the border with Ukraine is the formulation they use. Russia counters that on the border with Ukraine means on Russian territory. I mean in Russian sovereign territory. And so the United States has no business saying what Russian troops should do on Russian soil. In fact, they have no business saying what Ukraine should do either. The United States should simply butt out of this. And for the leadership of the Russian government, importantly, this is placed in a bigger geopolitical conflict where the NATO military alliance, the main US-led military alliance of all the big imperialist powers of the world, have since the fall of the Soviet Union been slowly creeping Eastward, incorporating more and more former Soviet allies and reorienting such that while the Soviet Union no longer exists, NATO's new principal enemy is Russia in line with the U.S. government's great power competition doctrine. So these talks will take place between Wendy Sherman, the Deputy Secretary of State for the U.S., and the Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs. There'll be a couple other related talks going on this week involving NATO officials, Organization for Security and Cooperation, and Europe officials. But this is an ongoing crisis and one, one that I think nobody really expects to be resolved through these talks, but could very well continue to escalate.
1: I mean, I was struck by Anthony Blinken going on the Sunday talk show saying Russia is doing something that is unacceptable in the modern world. It's interfering in the affairs of other governments. It's telling other governments how they should think. It's interfering in the politics of other countries. It feels it can change the governments of other countries. And I'm thinking, like, this is a US official talking like that about any other country? when the U.S. has, of course, as we know, invaded Iraq twice, invaded Afghanistan, bombed Libya, went to war against Syria. You know, when we think about all of the instances of regime change or wars and occupations designed to create regime change by the U.S., and then the U.S. folds its arms and says, we're warning Russia. We're warning Russia, you can't change other governments, you can't interfere. Anyway, I want people to realize what what the Russians are saying. Vladimir Putin said, "We want good relations and we really don't want to burn bridges. But if someone mistakes our good intentions for indifference or weakness and intends to burn down or even blow up these bridges, they should know that Russia's response will be asymmetrical, swift and harsh." That's the president of Russia. Now, he normally talks Pretty softly, but there's a reason that they're talking so strongly about Ukraine. Ukraine was the second largest republic in the Soviet Union after Russia. It was Russia's main trade partner. Ukraine was, in many ways, the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. After the counter revolution overthrew the governments in the Soviet Union, in Russia, in Ukraine, Ukraine became independent. And for the last, you know, all the time since 1991 all the time, almost 30 years. The U.S. has been pumping in billions of dollars through the so-called National Endowment for Democracy, other non-governmental organizations. And then in 2013, in the fall of 2013, when the Russian government, I think, was preoccupied with the Sochi Olympics, the Winter Olympics, and there was lots of you know international protests coming and they were worried that the Olympics would be disrupted. These protests began in the middle of Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. It was called Maidan, meaning the Maidan Square protests. And they went on for November and December and January. And then in early February, mid-February, really, a deal was struck between the opposition forces to the Yanukovych government, who were pro-European, pro-EU, pro-NATO, And the Yanukovych government, which was a government that wasn't pro Russian but sought neutrality between East and West and vowed that Ukraine would never become a part of NATO, they came to a deal with Yanukovych. And the Russians were at the table, and the Germans were at the table, and the French were at the table, and the US was at the table, but as an observer. And there was an agreement that Yanukovych would pull the police out of the center of Kiev, that he would call early elections in Ukraine, meaning allowing the opposition to replace him as the president. He would devolve authority from the center of Ukraine to the regions, which was another demand of the opposition. And he signed that agreement with international observers watching on February 21st, 2014. On February 22nd, 2014, fascist-led militias, Stormed the parliament, dispersed the parliament, tried to kill the president. He fled for his life. And they created a neo Nazi regime in Ukraine at that time. The whole eastern part of the country speaks Russian, was historically part of Russia. I mean, in 1625, Kiev was a capital of Russia. I mean, it's always been historically part of Russia, at least the eastern part of Ukraine. They banned the Russian language. And they made it clear that they were going to join NATO. Now, at that moment, the U.S. thought, and by the way, McCain, John McCain, Hillary Clinton spokespersons, you know, they were all in Maidan. They were handing out cookies to the protesters. The U.S. government, both parties, joint operation, all the U.S. media cheering them on, saying this was the greatest day for Ukrainian democracy when the fascists stormed the parliament and dispersed the government. And they thought, OK, we have Russia by the throat. And it was then that Putin said, look, we're going to let the people in Crimea, who are almost all Russian speakers and ethnically Russian, we're going to let them have a referendum about whether under these circumstances they want to re reaffix Crimea to Russia. And they had a referendum in June 2014, and 95 percent of the people voted yes, we prefer to be with Russia. Crimea had always been part of Russia. It was only given to Ukraine in 1954 by Nikita Khrushchev when Ukraine and Russia were part of the same country, the Soviet Union. And so when Putin did that, the United States accused Russia of seizing Ukraine because that referendum took place in Crimea where the people voted to associate with Russia rather than Ukraine. The other part of that equation that's very important for people who don't know enough about this situation to understand is Crimea was the s- most important naval base for the Soviet Union and after the Soviet Union collapsed after the Soviet Federation or Union broke up there was an agreement between the Ukrainian now independent Ukrainian government and the Russian government that the Black Sea fleet the Russian Black Sea naval base the largest military installation that Russia has would remain part of Russia, even though Crimea was technically a part of Ukraine. So when the U.S.-led fascist coup d'etat took place, Vladimir Putin realized that the Russian primary biggest military base, the largest naval base, would now become a NATO base with nuclear missiles pointed at Russia. That was too much. And so then, and only then, did Russia go forward and allow this referendum to take place. And since then, since then, the United States and all of the politicians and the media have labeled Putin to be and Russia to be the aggressor. But that's the actual context. And so Russia now feels that Ukraine, which was the exact, you know, planes through which Hitler invaded the Soviet Union in June, 1941, What Putin is saying is this is a red line for us. We are not going to allow Ukraine, formerly our biggest ally, the second biggest republic in the Soviet Union, to be used by NATO to prepare for an invasion of Russia. That's not going to happen. That's why we are now at the verge of a major power conflict between the U.S. and Russia. And the reason I wanted to give a little bit of this history is that the American people don't know about it. And they just think because they're told every day that Putin is bad, he's an autocrat, and Russia is an aggressor, when in fact, Putin, and in this case, Russia, are the victim of Western aggression.
3: Right. And if you listen to Anthony Blinken on the Sunday shows, like I did, the intentional omission of any context, even the fact that he was very much involved in the administration that led that coup d'etat that was involved in trying to maneuver Crimea away from Russia, he doesn't even mention that. But I heard one commentator just talk about how, how from his tone, kind of an immature bellicosity that it's almost like a personal getting back at Putin because Putin was able to take hold of and keep Crimea as part of Russia, which it had always been, and that they weren't able in this violent attack in 2014 to actually achieve what was their goal, which was to further cripple Russia by taking this very important military base.
4: The Biden administration is being criticized by some especially hardline militarists in the US establishment for essentially saying that they would not launch a military assault on Russia in the event of a quote-unquote invasion of Ukraine. Now, whether or not they would actually stick to that is a completely other question, but the Biden administration's position, I think it's important to sort of understand what words mean when they say sanctions, right? They say, okay, well, our response to a Russian invasion of Ukraine would be massive, unprecedented sanctions that would devastate the Russian economy. What they're talking about there is collective punishment of the Russian population, right? They're basically saying, we're going to make the lives of ordinary people in Russia so miserable, so unbearable, that the whole society and the government with it will bend to our will, right? I mean, it's important, I think, not to see these threats of economic warfare as being, you know, less depraved or less dangerous than other forms of, you know, more traditional military conflict. I mean, when the United States says we're going to sanction your economy to death, you know, that has a similar effect or that's taken a similar way by the Russian government as threats of all-out military attack because the consequences are indeed devastating.
1: All right, let's move on to another story, Really, really big news. The defendants, the murderers of Ahmed Arbery, the two McMichaels, father and son, received a sentence of life in prison without the chance of parole. The other defendant also life in prison, but with a chance of parole after 30 years. This case would never even have been brought. The lynching of Ahmed Arbery would never have made it to even the indictment of the individuals, much less their trial and their conviction. If it wasn't for the massive uprising against racism that started in the spring and late spring and summer of 2020 after George Floyd was killed, but that Arbery's case was another center of that uprising. Now, why that is so important is the jury was mostly white people. And so a lot of people thought because the defense had successfully eliminated black jurors from the jury for the most part that, you know, the defendants were going to get off, but they did not get off. And what makes the sentencing so important and has been so joyously received by Ahmed Arbery's family and, of course, by the community, the black community in Georgia, by people all over the country, is how rare it is for white people to actually be severely punished for killing black people. I was looking at some statistics about it because we all know it to be the case. But, you know, I was looking at who gets executed in the United States, for instance, because these are serious capital cases like the Ahmed Arbery case could have been a capital case, but they took the death penalty possibility out. And prison for life without parole was the maximum penalty. But when you think about capital cases and executions, you know, the death penalty was banned for a few years in the U.S. It came back in 1976. Here's from the United States General Accounting Office. In 82% of the studies reviewed, race of the victim was found to influence the likelihood of being charged with capital murder or receiving the death penalty. Those who murdered whites were found more likely to be sentenced to death than those who murdered blacks. But here's another statistic that I want everybody to wrap their head around. Since 1976, persons executed for interracial murders in the United States, how many white defendants who killed black people were executed? White defendants convicted of killing black people. That would be 21. How many black people who were convicted of killing white people were put to death? That would be 299. So you got those numbers. 21 white defendants went to, were put to death for killing a black person and 299 black defendants put to death convicted for killing a white victim. That's what makes the Ahmed Arbery sentencing Esther so profoundly important. And I'd say this would not have happened without the changed political climate caused by the movement of the people.
3: Absolutely. You know, when you hear some of the attorneys like Benjamin Crump just talk about how there had been so many lynchings, you know, in the South, uh, lynchings documented by the Equal Justice Initiative, you know, at the monument that they built, that None of those lynchings were ever dealt with in court. They were never handled as a criminal matter. They were just murders that were just extrajudicial killings. And those kinds of lynchings have like a long history in this country. And so Ahmad Aubrey's death and the court case, the conviction of these three men, is really as you mentioned, you broke down, it's very historic in many ways and that it comes in 2021 is just, it just makes me stop and think. It's something for all of us to ponder.
1: Indeed. And all the more reason we have to, you know, we've talked in the past, we want to look for hopeful signs because, you know, it feels like in society, the wheels are coming off and there's so much chaos with COVID and for large parts of the population, there was no booming economy, no economic recovery. We're looking for signs of hope, and the signs of hope all emanate from the same place, which is the struggle of the people. I want to go, though, to another story that's pretty not hopeful, pretty gruesome, and pretty much also an indictment of capitalism. You know, fire in America kills, for the most part, it kills poor people. There's a class basis to fire deaths in America. And a certainly a racist character of fire deaths in America. But more or less, fire kills poor people. Let's just talk real quick about what happened. Nineteen dead in this one building in the Bronx, a family building, and I believe twelve more killed in another horrible fire in Philadelphia. And it's not simply fire, it's fire in the context of class society.
3: Yeah, as you mentioned on Sunday morning. There was a fire at a duplex apartment in the city, in New York City's Bronxboro, and it killed at least 19 people, injured dozens of people who were hurt by this toxic smoke and just the remnants of that fire. And that was four days after 12 people were killed in Philadelphia in a fire. And in Philadelphia, there were three sisters and their sons and daughters that were killed. And that was in a row house in a building owned by the Philadelphia Housing Authority, which is like public housing. And in both of these cases in New York, they believe that the fire was started by a malfunctioning electrical space heater. So that brings up all kinds of questions about why people needed to heat their home, which was supposed to be heated, you know by the landlord and why there were no safeguards in terms of people being able to, you know, have enough warning to like leave their apartment. In Philadelphia, they believe that the, fire may have been started by a child playing with a lighter or something near a Christmas tree. But still, this is a public housing issue. And why weren't there the type of smoke detectors or working smoke detectors and and other type of detectors so that people would have adequate warning? And I think that a quote I saw from Congress member Richie Torres whose district includes the Bronx building where the fire was, he said it best. He said he blamed decades of disinvestment in affordable housing. And he said this this disinvestment leaves buildings wide open to these kinds of catastrophic fires that can cost people their lives. You know, and as we've talked so much during the pandemic about build back better, the small amount of money in there included for public housing You know, this is the type of thing that the society has just forgotten about. You know, people just want to talk about the booming real estate market, uh, but that only applies to a small section of the population. Most people cannot afford the housing prices as they are, the amount that it costs to rent an apartment, especially since the crash of 2008 and 2009, when so many of these private hedge fund operations bought up the houses that people lost, bought up the small amount of equity that people lost during that crisis. And so more and more people are in apartments, more and more people are renting apartments and are just kind of basically held hostage to these types of rents and very often substandard living conditions.
0: And not to mention, I mean, part and parcel of the substandard living conditions are people you know, who are crammed into these apartment buildings. The Philadelphia Fire was actually a single family home. It was a row house and it had been converted like so many. We live in Washington, D.C., where so many of the row houses that originally housed one family are now being converted into two and even three apartment units. This had been converted into two units and there were 12 people who were living in the two units. I mean, it's just so many people to be kind of stuffed into these small, small living spaces presumably because they're you know, housing is so expensive. And, you know, when you've got 12 people in, you know, two small apartments, it's going to take a while to get that many people out of these small spaces. And it's just, that's a fire hazard among so many other issues.
3: Right.
4: Yeah, that's right, Nicole. And, you know, that's per unit too i mean in the entire building there are 26 people living there and and at one point the housing authority actually said that there were 15 people in one of those units these which are which are two bedroom by the way so i mean overcrowding is a huge fire hazard and it points to the extreme crisis of affordable housing i mean in philly and this is definitely true in lots of other places you could easily be on the waiting list for public housing for more than a decade easily for more than a decade and yet there's still building, there's still construction happening all the time. I mean, there's a construction boom going on and has been in Philadelphia and again, in many other cities too. But this is construction of housing that is not affordable. I mean, this is, you know, luxury apartments. This is the type of housing that big banks and corporations can make a lot of money off of, but not one that working class people can afford. And the government is completely complicit in this. You know, Philadelphia has a tax abatement, meaning that for new construction, real estate developers do not have to pay taxes for the first 10 years after that construction takes place. So this is something where the city government the big banks, the real estate developers and public housing authorities are, are all really complicit.
0: And that means these developments, when they build these luxury developments that most people can't afford, it's fine for those corporations to just sit, let those empty units sit like they also do in Washington, D.C. There's more empty units than there are people who need units, but they're empty because these corporations don't have to pay those taxes. They can just wait until someone can pay three, four, five thousand five thousand dollars a month for a one or two bedroom apartment. And that regularly happens.
1: All right, let's turn to another story. It's the anniversary of the opening of Guantanamo prison. The one part of Cuba where torture has and does take place is in the part controlled by the U.S. Navy, the U.S. naval base of Guantanamo, a, a reflection of the colonial takeover of Cuba in 1898. Obviously, the Cuban Revolution happened in 1959. The Cubans don't want the American Navy in part of Cuba called Guantanamo Bay, but there it is. And 20 years ago today, January 11th, 2002, Guantanamo was opened and it was designed to create an environment where international and national law would not apply to those who were detained in Guantanamo because it's not inside the United States, it's not under the jurisdiction of the U.S. federal judicial system, and because it's a U.S. naval base located in a third country, it's not under anybody else's laws either, which is why the U.S. government chose Guantanamo to set up what the U.N. has proclaimed officially to be a torture center. And 20 years later, 20 years later, And, you know, more than a decade after Obama came in and said one of his top priorities was to close Guantanamo, Guantanamo, the torture center, is still open. It's a scar. It's a stain. It's an indicator that the U.S. approves and still embraces torture. Until 2006, the U.S. government would not release the names of any of the detainees that said it didn't want to violate the privacy rights of the detainees. So all of these kidnapped people, their families did not know where they were sent to. They knew they were gone. And by the way, when I'm saying kidnapped, I mean kidnapped. There were 779 men and boys who were brought to Guantanamo in the last 20 years. Only 5% of them were captured in battle or on a battlefield by U.S. military forces. Only 5%. All of the others were turned in through what the Pentagon called, and the CIA called its bounty program. So let's say you didn't like your neighbor. Let's say you were really angry at your neighbor. Let's say you're angry at your neighbor and you were really poor and you wanted some money. You could say your neighbor was a terrorist and the special operation forces would come and kidnap your neighbor and bring them to Guantanamo. So we had 779 people brought to Guantanamo. How many convictions of these so-called terrorists were there at Guantanamo over the last 20 years? That would be eight. There were eight convictions in total for terrorism charges. And again, these trials were by military commissions, which are not actually legal either. I mean, the ages of the people who were in Guantanamo, I mean, it was every age group. I mean, the youngest Guantanamo prisoner was 13. The oldest Guantanamo prisoner was 89. How many of the people of the 779 who were in Guantanamo were children? That would be 21, 21 children. In 2016, there were 40 people still in Guantanamo. Today, there are, there's one less, there's 39, 39 people still in Guantanamo. Now, many of them have also been cleared for release, but they're not being released. How much does it cost U.S. taxpayers, by the way, to house a prisoner in Guantanamo? Well, let's compare it first to how much does it cost a U.S. taxpayer to house a prisoner in a U.S. federal prison? That's a very big number. To put somebody in prison costs $31,977. But for a Guantanamo prisoner, The cost per prisoner is $11 million for each year. Yes, $11 million per prisoner to keep these 40 people still at the Guantanamo Torture Center. Esther, I mean, when you look at the record here, there's sort of lawlessness, there's torture, there's arrogance, but there's also this kind of ridiculous opportunism in American politics, where everyone knows that there's nothing about Guantanamo and the maintenance of this prison and the maintenance of these 40 people in this torture center is in any shape or form keeping the American people safer. And it's obviously denounced by the United Nations as a torture center. And yet the American system of governance is so bad, such a failure, it can't even close Guantanamo.
3: I can't help but put this in the same category of the same way that we look at how Venezuela is treated. Right. And the government makes up these official lies and it particularly makes up these official lies about people and countries that are part of the formerly colonized world. The countries and the people that were under the subjugation of not only U.S. imperialism, but the European imperial powers that held places like Cuba in a state of slavery and semi-slavery for centuries only and refuse to not only give up something like Guantanamo, but refuse that history and refuse to even acknowledge that these people have a right to their sovereignty and to not have a torture chamber on their land. And, you know, we were just talking about Ukraine and, you know, Anthony Blinken's wild, insane comments over the weekend about Russia shouldn't have the ability to change another country's borders or interfere in their business. But what have we done to Cuba for the past 50 to 60 years, not to mention the decades and centuries before that in cahoots with Europe? So yeah, the the whole thing is just ridiculous. It's, It's one of those things, it's one of those stories that make you make you crazy, right? To just talk about it. Because, you know, when we set these things right, when we, as people, you know, have power to change these systems of government, we can change these things. And until then, we just have to let, keep reminding people about it.
1: All right. Let's turn to, we have a really important interview with a Canadian labor activist that Walter conducted. I think it's so important at the moment that the labor movement is reviving in the United States, it's also reviving in Canada and and the struggle of the Canadian working class, the Canadian labor movement, indigenous people in Canada. We wanna build stronger and stronger ties between the struggle here in the United States and the struggle in Canada and in the struggle with the people of Mexico. In other words, a continent-wide united front against reaction and for social change. We wanna play that interview, which we think is so important and interesting. But first, and lastly, before we do that, sad news, Esther, Lonnie Guineer died in the last few days. Again, a lot of people who are perhaps a little bit younger might not know. Well, actually what happened to Lonnie Guineer was so emblematic, of the 1990s where the Democratic Party taken over by the Democratic Leadership Forum sort of turned its back on or cast out big parts of the civil rights movement and the black community in particular as it moved further and further to the right with a neoliberal agenda. Anyway, let's just remember Lani Guineer real quickly and what the Clinton administration actually did to her.
3: The thing I remember about Lani Guinier is that, like you said, she was nominated for assistant attorney general by then president Bill Clinton. And she was a scholar and she remained a scholar all of her life on issues of justice, particularly around the voting system and ways to make our so-called democratic system more democratic she talked about proportional representation for example in voting and a lot of her scholarship underlies many of the things that people talk about now in terms of ranked choice voting and ways so that Black people, other people of color, people who are coming from lower income communities can have a representation on a national level. And their, our ideas won't be swamped by the so-called majority. Okay. And, A lot of her ideas are also still bearing fruit today in terms of when people talk about implicit bias. And she, through her research, really was able to show how our institutions that we pay our tax dollars to are discriminating against people of color. So it's really important to remember her because, as you said her ideas in the nineties were twisted by, well, I should say that Bill Clinton allowed her ideas to be twisted. And, you know, this is when, you know, the Fox news machine was getting revved up. And so she was called the quota queen. Her ideas about having more representation by people of color were painted as anti-democratic. And so instead of listening to her ideas and the whole country being able to benefit, we see that now that if she had been listened to these issues we're having right now around racial gerrymandering, about how voting districts are being redrawn to carve out or eliminate Black majority voice, they wouldn't be happening. But because the Democrats didn't stick up for her and in a way their traditional base of Black voters, I think it leads us straight to this moment we are right now, when we're having this national freakout, basically about the so-called threat to our democracy, not only by January 6th, but by this nationwide effort by Republicans to redraw districts, to disenfranchise voters, to engage in rampant voter suppression. If they had held on to the ideas of someone like Lonnie Guinier, we wouldn't be where we are right now.
1: And just to close out on this point, So Clinton nominated her as assistant attorney general for civil rights. The Republicans mounted this racist campaign against her, saying that her scholarship that talked about and advocated for increasing black representation and the representation of other people who had, quote, minority status in the United States, that this was a form of reverse racism. As they attacked her, Clinton, instead of defending her, just pulled the nomination shortly after the debacle with Clarence Thomas becoming Supreme Court justice and the Democrats, all of them, including Joe Biden on the Senate Judiciary Committee, turning their back on Anita Hill. So you see these step by step, the Democratic Party turning their back on Anita Hill in favor of Clarence Thomas and then throwing out Lonnie Guineer, creating false controversies with Sister Soldier, which Bill Clinton did to show that he wasn't going to be really with the black community in one way for the right wing. And then the, the 1994 crime bill, which Biden said was his biggest crowning achievement, which led to the doubling of the U.S. prison population. And then two years after that, Clinton did what Ronald Reagan always called for, but only could dream of, which was the quote, end welfare as we know it, and kicked 10 million people off of benefits, 7 million of whom were children, in a single day. This was the Democratic Party between 1991 and, you know, 1996. This was the big change where the Democratic Party really became sort of, in a way, the mild version
4: of racist republicanism. Now we'll turn to another topic, the labor movement and how workers are organizing across borders to win justice. We're happy to be joined by Amina Sheikh. She's a labor and community organizer based in Toronto, Canada. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
4: So there's a really exciting surge of interest in labor organizing going on right now. Can you talk about some of the union organizing drives that you've been a part of And why is this movement and this moment so important?
2: Yeah, well, to start with, in March of 2020, when I had just come back from volunteering on the Sanders campaign in Detroit, I was knocking on doors for Bernie, and I had a campaign going before I left. I I'm working at the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, and I was organizing what we call early childhood educators or designated early childhood educators. They work in the full day kindergarten program. And what happened was my campaign was a little bit on halt. I came back and I was told that I had to quarantine that COVID-19 this disease was spreading, that, you know, I was trying to rapidly understand all the information being thrown at us. So I was at home and I was thinking about how I keep organizing. Most of my organizing work happens in the field. I was trained in a methodology that is from SEIU where we do one-on-one conversations, small meetings. Most of these conversations happen outside the workplace, near and familiar places where workers can come to over food and coffee at the local Tim Hortons, where we talk about the union. And because of the pandemic, I had to completely change my method and move everything to online. And I had a campaign going of about 130 educators outside of the city of Toronto and with schools closed immediately and the workforce that I was organizing was part-time. So many of them, their work, the nature of their work is very precarious. They receive an assignment the night before, sometimes the morning of. Many of them are working two jobs and a lot of them, over 90% of them, are women in this workforce. So I just want to take you to imagine that pre-pandemic, this part-time work and this workforce, and this isn't just, you know, what I was organizing. A lot of workers are already alienated, right? And then now a lot of us are isolated because of the pandemic under COVID-19 and the alienation is exacerbated. So what was the success of this organizing was we did everything online and, I shifted the entire campaign through digital tools. I started using Facebook, which I was really reluctant to use pre-pandemic. And I started to use Zoom, as everyone knows about now. And we had great momentum and we had overwhelming support. Our organizing committee grew and we convened plans through chats and we decided to move forward with filing an application. And we felt that there was no better time than to file that application with the Ontario Labour Relations Board then immediately. And what was good about Ontario, where this campaign was going on, is that the OLRB, the Ontario Labour Relations Board, was still functioning. I know that wasn't happening in the US for a little bit in the beginning of the pandemic because construction industry and business lobbyists tried to shut down the Labour Relations Board. They were unsuccessful And some of the laws here change for the better as well, for example, the Ontario Labor Relations Board was accepting e-filing and electronic cards. So this was something radically new for me as an organizer. Pre-pandemic, I was required to submit everything through paper copies and fax machines. So that tells you a lot about the processes in Ontario. And yeah, so we filed for a certification vote. What I mean by that is we filed electronic cards and we had filed and successfully achieved a vote. And over 48 hours, these designated early childhood educators voted yes to a union and we won the vote by 99%.
4: That's really, really interesting to hear about. I mean, there are so many new challenges that labor organizers in Canada and the United States, all around the world have to deal with because of the unprecedented circumstances, conditions brought upon us by the pandemic. And it's so great to hear a story of a successful organizing drive. Now, I know that organizing across cities, across municipalities, and even across borders is something else that you have an interest in and have been practicing to significant success. Could you talk about that too a little bit in addition to the communication tools that need to be modified given these circumstances? What other sort of tactical changes, tactical flexibility do you think would be necessary?
2: Yeah. Well, thank you for asking me that because this was happening pre-pandemic, actually. We saw it with the Google employees who walked out around sexual harassment and workplace harassment. We saw this pre-pandemic. It started to happen and it was happening across cities and it was happening across borders. I think also what we saw pre-pandemic was Amazon walkouts. Like this isn't new. It led to this moment we're seeing now where, you know, warehouse workers and you know, supply and demand and all of this crisis in the pandemic have led to more unionization and more unrest in the workplace. But this was happening pre pandemic. And one successful campaign that I really want to highlight that happened during the pandemic was Indigo or Chapter Book store employees, they unionized across the country. So, you know, it usually starts at a site and it's similar to what we saw with Starbucks workers in Buffalo, that recent win, right? It starts with a site, the site gets hot, it spreads. And one successful union story happens, then basically it goes to other locations. And this success of this bookstore Bookstores was in British Columbia to Ontario to Quebec. And a lot of this organizing is in malls, in the suburbs, in places that we think aren't the hot spots, right? You know, people think that, you know, this is not where it's happening. This is where it's happening. And a lot of this organizing is across borders. And I would say the success of their campaigns. I would argue, is because they're self-run campaigns. A lot of these campaigns are organic and very much grassroots and led by workers. And really what you see with Indigo Chapter workers is UFCW, the United Food and Commercial Workers, have supported these workers, but really they run all their social media accounts. Recently, I just saw on one of the social media accounts, they were demanding that the employer give them a 95 masks and they won that. And this is all done by themselves. And I think it's because it's grassroots rank and file organizing from the work floor. And I think the success of these campaigns is because of social media, they can build communications and spread it more than what we used to have in the past was you know like posting on on the bulletin board in the staff room right or like putting physical copies on like privately in people's desks you know i just think pre pandemic we were still doing things in ways that weren't forward thinking. And I think that unions, because of the pandemic, were forced to adapt quickly and lead campaigns in creative and non-traditional ways. And I think that what we're going to see is more international solidarity between workers. These corporations are international. And so workers also have to organize internationally
4: yeah very important points you know one other question i wanted to ask you about this topic of labor organizing is i mean what are the state of labor laws in canada i mean are is the right to organize a union protected more or less than the united states you know in the us there's of course a, a whole range of really reactionary right wing restrictive labor laws And there's also an ongoing push to change some of those. For instance, there's the movement to pass the PRO Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which would make it vastly, vastly easier to form a union in the United States. But what's the state of the situation in Canada? What are Canada's labor laws like?
2: Well, Canada's labor laws federally and provincially differ, similar to the U.S., right? You have state laws and then you have like federal laws. I would say that both... Are outdated. I want to start there, right? So they are functioning in a place that I would say is like in the 1900s where workers are in 2022. And why I'm saying that is because we can see in this pandemic, and again, unions were saying this, you know, pro-worker organizations were saying this pre-pandemic, that the service sector is the world of work, first of all. Second of all, you have all these workers misclassified under subcontracting schemes like Uber. workers globally, right? And you have millions and millions of workers across the world, billions probably, but like in informal economy. And A lot in North America, let's just start with Canada, is you know, you have all this world of work that's in service. So that could be a fitness trainer, that could be a beauty technician, that could be a hairdresser, that could be the food industry, you know, art, actors, dinner theater, you know, all these types of workers that have approached me to unionize and should be in unions are left out to sort of be on their own. In this pandemic, And that's because the Canadian in my province, the province that I live in in Ontario, the labour laws are outdated and they do not account for all these workers that are in this, quote, gig economy and are, you know, independent contractors. They are not independent contractors. And I think there is a moment of consciousness that has happened in this pandemic for those workers that sort of saw themselves of self-made hustle. I'm my own boss. So that's the first thing that I wanted to touch upon. So you have all all these workers and who are misclassified in these subcontracting schemes like my interest is in beauty technicians or hairdressers right they have lost all their savings you know they have no protections throughout this pandemic and many of them you know, have been left out to figure out what to do themselves, you know. And the other thing I would say that is a difference from Canada and the U.S. is we do have the legal framework of the RAND formula that dates back to 1946. It was an arbitration settlement between the United Auto Workers and Windsor in the Ontario Ford plant. And what, Justice Rand decided at that moment is that union dues should be paid by all those who benefited from the union contract, not those that just signed members. Like everybody has to pay union dues. And what this meant was that all employers had to deduct from the employee's paycheck union dues and give it to the union. And this is the big difference because you all have what's called right to work or right to work for less. Um, And I just want to remind people who are listening is that union dues are your power and dues are collectively decided upon and democratically decided upon through the union. Union dues are extremely important. They are your strike fund. They are your pool of resources they are the way you fight the boss and the company and um but with that i want to say the biggest problem in canada and ontario and all the provinces is although the rent formula is a win we also have a lot of back to work legislation imposed on workers during legal strikes. So what this means is over the years with all the conservative governments, and currently in Ontario, we have a conservative government now, but over the years, what the governments have done is successfully increase and implement legislation that forces workers to go back to work. So back to work legislation to prevent legal strikes. And that is why I think over the years, unions have had to settle and make deals that aren't always favorable to workers. The other thing in Canada and Ontario, again, is we don't have what is called card check. Card check was a model that existed in Ontario pre-conservative government, 1995, where if, let's say, I gave you a union card, a paper union card, and I gave your workforce let's say like a coffee shop, all of them signed a union card, that paper union card would be submitted to the Ontario Labour Relations Board. And if you had more than 51%, they were recognized as a union. What the governments across the country have implemented is a two-step process and lots of layers of rules and laws and processes that prevent workers from joining unions and forming unions easily. So now we have what is called a ballot process. Um, They like to call it a secret ballot process, but it's not really a secret because by the time the organizer successfully overcomes all the barriers and the bureaucratic red tape to file for a union, what happens is it gets outed So like what we saw with Starbucks, what we've seen with Amazon is once it's outed, the boss runs their anti-union campaign, right? And employers globally use all these union busting firms to fight workers. And what we really have to do in order to form a union is make sure that we have large majorities and we talk to everyone in the workplace and that is the way you win and that's the way we organize successful union drives is to make sure that we have more than 90 percent of the workforce saying yes and so what I just really want to say is that Canada may have a bit more union density in the public sector but the service sector is where there's a larger workforce and we need to organize in there.
4: Well, you know, I, I just want to switch gears for our last couple minutes here, just because, you know, we've been talking about Canada, people's struggles in Canada. And in the context of the United States, I mean, when Canada is brought up in politics, frequently it's about the healthcare system, the national healthcare system. And so I just wanted to get your opinion before we wrap up on that. I mean, what really is the state of the healthcare system in Canada? Um, it's compared to the US system by progressive people in the U.S. favorably generally, right? But that's a very low bar to be better than the for-profit capitalist healthcare system in the U.S. What's really going on in in Canada?
2: Well, I'm glad you asked me this as well because I like to talk about it and debunk these myths. And I think when I went for the Sanders campaign, you do hear a lot of people think about Canada in this lovely way, romantic way, that it's like, you know, we have this great healthcare system and we have social safety nets. What we really need to realize is Canada is not outside the neoliberal paradigm and that, you know, our healthcare, our public services, our roads, our infrastructure, our telecommunications, everything over the years have been impacted by cuts, cuts led by conservative governments and cuts led by the liberal government as well. And what we have been told over the years by medical experts, by policy think tanks, that we were going to come to this point and that, We had to come to this point and see in this crisis, how millions of people have been left behind. And the communities that are most impacted in Canada are working people. Black, First Nations, immigrants, refugees, people who are not able to access the system in an equal way. We are seeing right now in Bearskin Lake, a First Nations reserve up north, there's an outbreak that has affected more than half the community. And this community has basically been left to fend for itself, right? And this is not because of COVID 19. That's what I wanted to say. This is because the conservative government in this province, from Doug Ford to Stephen Harper to Mike Harris, to the liberal government as well. So Justin Trudeau, who, you know, is a poster child for the world for human rights, is the same government who puts millions of dollars towards building pipelines across this country and dispossessing First Nation communities, but cannot build a road. And we have clean water advisories. What I mean by that is we have boiling water advisories for a lot of First Nation communities across this country. That means they don't have access to clean water. So can you imagine what that means under COVID-19 or under a health crisis like this and that is unacceptable and so i just really want the viewers to know that canada is no different from the united states canada spends millions and millions of dollars on war you know we are still selling weapons to countries like saudi arabia we're involved in wars in the ukraine you know but we can't get proper adequate healthcare for communities during a global health crisis Furthermore, you know, we don't manufacture anything. We sold off a lot of our manufacturing. We pushed out those jobs. And in this crisis, we have seen, for example, in Oshawa, you know, communities saying we can produce N95 masks for the population. Why aren't we doing that? Well, we should look towards our government, our government who has sold off all our facilities are manufacturing and we are not advanced anymore so I don't know if we should praise ourselves finally I would say the other thing that I think is a huge myth that I hear about Canada is a lot and I think Bernie Sanders talks about it is that everybody has access to cheap medication that is far from the truth you know One in four Canadian households in this country cannot afford medications prescribed to them. And this data is from 2015. Canada pays the highest prices in prescription medication. We spend more on medication than doctors. You know, people have to make hard choices in this country and a lot of workers are left without benefits and especially under this pandemic where you actually don't have an employer because you have all these people who are laid off. So that is why in Canada we also need a public, universal, accessible national pharmacare plan and it would save employers money, it would save workers money. So I just really wanted to say that those are myths that I hear about in the U.S. and you see all these comparisons happening between, you know, the Canadians and the Americans. And I think they are false.
4: (laughs) We're going to have to leave it right there. Thank you very much for joining the show. We were joined by Amina Sheik, a labor and community organizer based in Toronto, Canada. You're listening to The Socialist Program.
1: Excellent interview, Walter. Let's talk about the big
4: stories from Liberation News. Well, one that I want to highlight is titled Massachusetts Nurses Persevere, Win Safe Staffing Gains with Historic 300-Plus-Day Strike. This is about a strike against Tenet Healthcare at St. Vincent Hospital, waged by members of the Massachusetts Nurses Association. Their strike was the longest strike by nurses in the history of Massachusetts and the longest nurses strike nationwide in the last 15 years. You can get more details here. Another article on Liberation News to highlight, Democrats' inaction on tax credit condemns millions of children to poverty. We were talking a little bit about this at the beginning of the show. You can get more details about just how devastating this is, the end of this critical relief program, the enhanced child tax credit. And finally, there's an article titled San Diego Nurses Supporters Mobilize for Universal Health Of course, the health care crisis, as we talk about almost every week, is deepening. It's dire, but there is struggle and the California Nurses Association, National Nurses United are fighting back. So go to liberationnews.org. You can sign up for our newsletter by clicking the link at the top and check back every day for regular updates. We will be back
1: tomorrow with Professor Richard Wolf. It's our weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories in the economy with Marxist economist Professor Richard Wolf. On Thursday, in The Real Story, we're going to have part two on the January 6th assault. We had Dr. Gerald Horn last week. This week, we'll be discussing. The Rise of Fascism, What January 6th Meant, How to Build a United Front Against Fascism, How to Defeat Fascism in the United States. And we'll be joined by Professor Gabriel Rockhill and also Claudia de la Cruz. She is the co-executive director of the People's Forum. So we have a lot more this week here on The Socialist Program.
0: You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. Thank you.